Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I've been meaning to ask you, Mark, are you looking forward to it? Has the, has the, has the news excited you that um, Faulty Towers is coming back? <laughs> has it, we, we simply haven't, uh, we haven't been able to touch on this. No, I, guess you're, I guess you're boyishly excited about it. Oh, dear, oh, dear. I felt, are you not, Mark? I felt a great chill when I read that, didn't you? Oh, God. It's that... just frightful. It's absolutely frightful. It's weird because quite a bit of that. We, we, we talked about last week, well, Roger Waters remaking Dark Side of the Moon. But that kind of idea of remake, I mean, there's a spinal tap, isn't there? A spinal tap being done. I'm a bit more optimistic about that. Maybe. That's a different thing. That's three guys who are all still there, original cast, same director, very funny, very clever, and it's pitched 40 years on, and there's lots of rich comic opportunities. And I think that's okay. And it's far enough apart that you don't kind of think of it as necessarily a sequel. But Faulty Towers, oh, no, no. I think, yeah, I go further. I think it should be literally against the law to mess with anything like that. You know, it was 12 episodes, whatever it was. It was perfect. There ought to be a law passed... On an international basis, the the so everybody the whole world agrees this is one of the reasons this is brilliant is there are only twelve. There's only twelve of them. Don't superb. mess with this. You and know. they depend entirely on the balance of characters within. And no, and half of them, you know, not there anymore. Andrew Sachs not there anymore. Prunella Scales, you know, no, the major retired, gone. exactly. Um, you know, it's it's just ridiculous. But I'll tell you what it shows. It shows one thing, what people will do for their children. And so he's doing this for his daughter, isn't it? Isn't he? He, he is. He it's, a, it's really a vehicle for her. But, I mean, I would have thought well, that if – I'm sorry about that. This is another a, element people, of it. People talk about Nepo babies or whatever they talk about. Today. I know. This is the classic case, isn't it? Jim? But it, surely it's bad. And I've always felt that with people like yeah, Sting went on a tour, didn't he, for 18 months when the police reunion happened. With, I think, his son as the opening act. Was that right? I wouldn't be surprised. His son or his daughter. I well, they all uh, end up with that. I know, but, but, you know, and playing to 70,000 people a night and yet no career evolved out of this. So you couldn't have given someone a greater opportunity. And you'd think that if you have a famous dad, the best thing to do is to kind of resist that and try and make it on your own. The idea that your your father has created a vehicle pretty much entirely for you and to reboot his own uh, his own profile is a little bit dispiriting, isn't it? But then on the other hand, you do get the people like Joachim Kuda, Rai Kuda's son, who I get the feeling kind of runs his father. You know, he's yeah, the possibly. guy who says... You go out and do this. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to set it up. Yeah. You know, I'm going to play the percussion. Yeah. It's going to be this kind of thing. And were it not for him, I don't think Rye would stir from his sofa. You know, yeah, whereas, yeah, yeah. whereas he he plays a very important role in that. And I'm sure there are are some offspring who do. But anyway, that's my point on the John Cleese 
Faulty Towers reboot. It's all about doing something for your children. And I wish they'd find some other way of doing it. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So there was this news um, about a week ago now that, uh, that Bruce Springsteen's fanzine Backstreets has said that after 43 years it's going to stop publishing. I mean, this may be a... A convenient uh, excuse. They're blaming. They're blaming the the the, the ruinous cost of Bruce Springsteen tickets, which are selling in some places for five thousand dollars on his new tour. But I mean, it might be just be that, that it's not selling very well, or the, the magazine, or it's just become a chore, or whatever. That's their excuse for doing it. But actually, if you look at it, the Springsteen ticket situation is is quite complicated, isn't it? Because yes, there are people prepared to pay and being offered and, and paying for $5,000 tickets. But also there's other places where tickets are going for, I don't know, $10 or $20. And so it's a part of this idea of, of kind of dynamic ticket pricing, isn't it? That that uh, that if, peop- if the demand is there, the prices will rise and carry on until you reach some kind of limit. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, basically, we've done this before, haven't we? Yeah, that... that the reason you had dynamic t- ticket pricing is previously you used to have dynamic ticket pricing where all the all the money went to touts. Yeah. You know, so if the face value of a ticket was £100 and somebody paid £500 for it, £400 went to the tout. And so the artist and the manager thinks, well, that's ridiculous. You know, if there's going to be any kind of profit, it should go to, should go to us. So, you know, if there are some people prepared to pay £500 for being effectively on stage or whatever... Yes, fine, we'll take that money. So that's how dynamic ticket pricing works. So you get huge gigs where the seats with huge demand very near the stage are it can be mad prices. But then effectively at the back of the place on the day, they're effectively giving tickets away, you know, because that's what's happening, you know. And so... The Springsteen tour of the States, which has only been going for know, about 10 days or something like that, the word is that he does really well on the coasts, unsurprisingly, you know, New York, Philadelphia and so forth, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Whereas if you're in the flyover states, you know, it less well, you know, and so on a Tuesday night in in the middle of uh, in the middle of Ohio, he probably doesn't do that brilliantly, you know. And if you're prepared to wait, and this is the other thing about ticketing, is that is that it's all about. It seems to me in terms but of holding your nerve. Well, it, it, yeah, but most people don't. And so when a tour is announced nowadays, and this has been this has been the to-do around Taylor Swift tickets, that they announced all the shows simultaneously. And the reason they do that is so they can get on the news. So they the only news having broken the internet. Exactly. Broken the internet. Yeah, yeah. It's sold out or whatever. Because it's an interesting point, this. Since the charts no longer mean That's anything, that's right. You used to be able all. to say number one to, selling. You used to be able to say knocked the Beatles off the top of the yeah, charts. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the biggest thing since you two, or, or whatever it was. Yeah. It was all. It was a cheap headline. Nowadays, there are none connected with records, uh, you know, on charts of any kind. The only way you can do this is via, you know, how much people will pay and how many people want to pay to go and see you perform you know so these things it's the only get, way you can calibrate your status isn't it yeah, yeah absolutely and um and so they announce all these things with the inevitable consequence that the internet does break you know in the face of the of the and the mad demand and then they blame the 
Ticketmaster or whoever yeah. it is. They never blame, nobody ever blames the artist. Whereas they could so. really easily just put out a block and then put out another block a week later. <laughs> just like, I yeah. Do, you know? yeah. And, uh, but also the other interesting factor in this is that, you know, back in the day, which is, you know, expression we use all the time and I'm not ashamed of using it. You know, when you wanted tickets, you used to either go and queue up somewhere. Oh, yeah, which was part of the fun. Or, or you, you know, you got a stamped address envelope and a postal order or whatever and sent to the Hammersmith Odeon box office. And then you kind of waited three weeks or longer to see if you were going to get anything back. And very often you did because the, you know, the universe of people going to gigs was quite it's small. Quite small, it was. Quite small. Whereas nowadays, the universe of people going to gigs is absolutely everybody down your street. Why? Because they can do it on their backside at home, on their computer, using their credit card. And, and if you're a teenager or a preteen or whatever, the buying is done for you by a parent right. desperate. Desperate to prove that they can do it. They can do it, desperate. and they really want you to go, and therefore they're, prepared to pay. It's like glass they're, meetings. Therefore prepared to pay anything at all to get them to make sure will. my child gets to yeah. see Beyonce. They, or they're not going to go back downstairs and I say, "I'm really sorry. I kind of my lost my nerve when it got to hundred pounds. That I thought that was just too much." And then your daughter goes, but my friend down the road, her father well, loves paid, her more. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Loves her seven hundred and fifty pounds worth. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so you've got all these people kind of piling yeah. in. So you've got this desperation around tickets at the time that they go on sale. Yeah. And then, and then according to the reports coming back from the States on the Springsteen tour, and I think on other tours as well, apart from possibly, you know, I don't know, very top level Beyonce or whatever, um, that on the day or the day before, if you have a look, there are tickets. Yeah, that's right. They won't necessarily be the. I know that the Springsteen do. There's tickets all over, all over the European, uh, the UK dates. There's still tickets available, you know, and not not massively costly ones. You can get in. People it's, just assume you can't. I think. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so talking to gigs and venues. You oh, you too. too. Yeah, you are, too. In Vegas. Are opening this this extraordinary place called what's it called? The MSG. It's called the MSG Sphere. Sphere. In I've Las been Vegas. following this. I think it's, re it's really It's a purpose-built, extraordinary installation. It's like an enormous great – well, it's a sphere. It's a it, yeah, it's, it's a globe. It's kind of sunk into the ground, you know. And uh, we've seen kind of artists' impressions of what it looks like. I mean, it looks like it's kind of IMAX, but with a band. Exactly that. No, I'm, I thought so, IMAX. You know, the whole idea, I think, is that the, the group play on a stage around which is wrapped – an LED screen, <clears throat> which is the size of three football pitches. That's around them, behind them, and above them, an LED screen. So that would be a combination of back projection and also projection of what you're actually of, of the of the group on stage. You know? And then I think there are I described it as multiple audio streams delivered to individual seats, which I don't fully understand, but I'm getting the impression that some incredibly sophisticated sound is coming at you and you can feel the there's a kind of sh a treat a, a tremor in the seat so you can feel a kind of um, a movement a physical movement you know and uh the the impression i find it quite exhausting just reading about it actually i mean you are just being it's a consensory bombardment isn't it, it is from every angle um 
in the most ramped up theatrical, brightly lit. Um, I, I mean, I, I, just, I can't imagine what it'd be like. It's just going to be extraordinary. But they're um, opening it, aren't they? And so this is the great Las Vegas unveiling. And um, I, the story I read, to, they're getting 90% of the uh, of the face value of the tickets. Now, the value of the tickets has not been announced yet. But this is going to be... Yeah, I don't but know it's what, a 1,700... 17,000 17, seater. 17,000 seater. So, so let's say it's 500 quid or something. You're talking about them taking about, I don't know, 7 or $8 million a night. They're playing there for 12 nights, and they're getting $10 million just for opening it. That's just a kind of sweetener, isn't it? That's just your... You know, a little present bonus. Just absolutely extraordinary. I reckon they can make a hundred million. I think they, I mean, this well, is merchandise. I, I don't. Know. But let's. I mean, I'm talking about grossing, but they could make somewhere in the region of hundred million in twelve days. I mean, it's Who, absolutely. It may scary. not be as much as that. You know, it could be something paltry like fifty million. <laughs> Hardly worth getting out of bed for. But, but the you know. The scale of these things are just absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? And, and also people's desire to be first is amazing. Yeah. Because you would have thought, you would have thought, it's possibly better to let somebody else go in there first and sort out the teething troubles, you know. Because traditionally, v- venues of any kind very often are a disaster at first, and then they work out you know how it should how it but should then the operate. publicity is fantastic they haven't done yeah. much for a while have they so this is they want to come back with the, with the loudest possible bang available and this is clearly it you know oh it's just astonishing this is a junction in the word podcast it separates that bit from this next bit at the other end of the spectrum the entertainment live entertainment spectrum have you been following these stories from all over the uk about the difficulties that theater owners are having with dealing with security issues over the behaviour of audiences at what you might call jukebox musicals. You know, so I'm talking about Jersey Boys or, you know, I don't know, there's a Michael Jackson one, isn't there, in the West? Yeah, yeah. Bob Marley's Bob Marley Marley one. one. Yeah. And obviously, famously, there was Mamma Mia and all all these kind of things. That basically... People, I have you. Have you ever been to one of these? I've been to one. I went to the Carol King one, which is no longer in the West End, um, called Beautiful. I think. Oh, it wasn't bad actually. It was quite, the, quite early the idea in it. of those to encourage you to sing along. I would have well, except is that they did in Beautiful. They they kind of confined it mainly to the end of the thing. So at the end of the thing, you find every, people stand up and they sing along. Yeah. Whatever. And so, you know, as it becomes a competitive area, people increasingly, you know, they, they make this an increasingly important component of the, of the evening's entertainment. But theatre owners are complaining that, that they're getting fights breaking out in the stalls between people who insist that it is their human right to stand up and sing I Will Always Love You along with the star of The Bodyguard uh, against those members of the audience who believe, not unreasonably, that you shouldn't do that. You're there to watch it. You're there to listen to it. And we haven't come to listen to you. 
you know, but down I don't know the how road. you police that because unless you actually say, okay, we'll officially have one song as a kind of encore where you can all get up and sing after, you know, it was maybe at the very end of the show or something. I don't know how you can control that because the thing about those experiences is, have you ever been to a gig and had to tell someone to 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 uh, to stop talking? Or, oh yeah, well, that's yeah. Talking's one thing. You know. or just stop making I've never told anybody stop singing. <laughs> ruins your evening. Oh, absolutely. You know, the evening never recovers, is it? No, I, I I couldn't agree more. But also, the other factor is, and this is what the theatre owners were saying. They're saying that the average usher just can't deal with it, you know, because the average usher is, is it wants to be an actor or an actress, you know, and they can hand out a program and a chalk ice, but they're not going to, you know, they're not going to um, wrestle. Step you know, in and say, tell if, someone to sit down. If, if all the, if also, all how pissed ever, is that person going to be if they want to This is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to say. Because this is all about how drunk they are. Yeah. When they get in the place, you know, this doesn't apply to all people by any means, but it will apply to a sizable minority. So as you're, as you're settling down to the bodyguard, old Jersey boys, if you look down the road, you know, there's a clinking of somebody putting their vodka bottle back in a handbag or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So they've smuggled in. Get <laughs> out for a meal. And, um, and they're, they're kind of half cut. Yeah. And, and that's how you get how you get fights breaking out. I thought it was just horrifying. So they talk about having to get proper kind of high vis jacket security in there, which really doesn't doesn't fit with the theatrical experience. Not remotely, you know. And, and how much are you paying? How much? That's the terrible thing is, you know, you bought three or four tickets for a thing, like a night out, and you've been out for dinner, and it's come wrecked by somebody. It's a I mean, fortune. It's a fortune. driven mad. Yeah, and uh, but you see, I think. I'm going to go further. Uh, I think I think drinking at kind of entertainment experiences got it get got out of hand. Actually, did you see following the England rugby internationals at, at Twickenham that Clive Woodward was saying that there ought to be non-drinking sections at Twickenham, and I have great sympathy for him because he's saying I've got no, nothing against people having a drink when they go there, but what I don't want is people getting up all the time to go and get another pint. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the in the middle of the match, so there ought to be sections where you can't do that, you know, and sections where you can if you want to, you know. But you see, the problem with gigs and drinking is this has been a rod fashioned for its own back by the theatrical profession, isn't it? Which has built drinking in into its into its business plan so much. That he now can't do anything about it. No, know? it can't. No, order, order you around of drinks for the interval. Have them waiting for you when you get out. You know all that kind of stuff. It's a and part you, of the you want to know why you hang about waiting so long at club gigs. The reason is that they can only make make money when you go to the bar. You know they don't want you in and out of that place in in a kind of in the most in the shortest space of time, which makes sense for everybody, really, wouldn't it? Makes sense for the band. Makes sense for you. Completely. Uh, makes sense for the people working there. You know, bring bring in the tea time gig is what I say, Mark, you know. Um, you know, enough of this, um, people half cut and tired after yeah. a long day. Alcohol free for adults. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we say. No booze. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. Well, I'm sure you saw that story about the, uh, the German... Um, Ballet uh, director who, um, God, Choreo God, choreographer, wasn't he? Choreographer, choreographer. choreographer. Um, poor, absolutely appalling story. 
bumped into the critic who'd been pretty vicious about the show that he put on. And this man, oh, it's too stressful to even talk about or think about, but he carried a, carries a small lap dog with him, doesn't he? <laughs> and um, some kind of um, making available <laughs> the weapon that he used to get his revenge, which was dog feces, which he then apparently smeared in her face. Is that right? Oh, my God, it's just simply absolutely appalling. This guy anyway, has been uh, he's been sacked, hasn't he, from his from his role. And, uh, I mean, there are examples of it. That is the most extreme example of anybody getting back at a critic that I've ever heard of or want to hear of. But there are examples, I think, of, um, I think, Stephen Burkoff, uh, Nicholas de Jong, was uh, pr- pretty brutal about one of his Shakespeare adaptations in 1979. I think he threatened to kill him. Je- Jeanette Winston has been round to the front door of critics and rung, the, rung their doorbells and had it out with them on the doorstep. No. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Michael Crichton, I think, who wrote Jurassic Park, was um, had a there was a, a, a critic who, um, a guy called Michael Crowley, who wrote something incredibly cruel about him. And he invented a character in his uh, oh, yeah, in a subsequent yeah. novel, didn't he, called Mick Crowley, political writer who attended Yale, which, which he had as well as you who described in the, in the book as being a dickhead and a weasel and having particularly small genitalia. <laughs> so there are there are forms of... I mean, has anybody ever had come back at you for writing? The worst that ever happened to me is I remember going to a gig and bumping into psychedelic furs. I'd been very <laughs> unkind about it in the late 70s in the enemy, and they got me in the corner and threatened to thump me. <laughs> and I was a bit alarmed, actually, I must admit. And... Uh, they actually threatened to thump me. They threatened to thump me, but uh, I, I just uh, apologised and said it just wasn't my cup of tea. And uh, I'm not really, the, I'm not really the psychedelic first reporter for the enemy. And they gave it to the wrong guy. I managed to get out of it somehow, but I was a bit thrown at it. Jimmy Percy once came into Smash It. Do you remember? Jimmy and, uh, Percy threatened yeah, us and said, "Never write about me again." So I didn't. And we said, "Fine, we won't." He pinned me against the door. Yeah, he did. Um, he did. Yeah, that's a long time ago. It was. It's 40 years ago, that is, Molly. <laughs> uh, yeah, but never forgotten. Um, but theatre and, uh, and and ballet critics, actually, in the kind of world of, um, you know, traditional theatre, opera, classical music. Yeah. I think there's more of that than goes on there than goes on in pop music, you know, because... They really do take that stuff seriously. They really do sit up all night waiting for the first edition to the newspapers, as it would have done in the days of you know paper. And well, e- that's presumably because those reviews have far more power than the average review does. To, I mean, rock music is not about reviews anymore, is it? Pop no, music? no, that's no. just you know. Okay, if you get good reviews, it helps, but it's but, but that's make or break in the theatrical world. Is it can close shows. But also, I've also got the feeling that. Um, the reviews they really take against are the ones where they think, no, that's hit quite close to home. Yeah. And you very often, how close to home it is will not be obvious to the person who wrote it or the average person who read it. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. But the person about whom it's written will know exactly how close to him it is. Yeah, or and it could that, be... A, that, that's what they really take against. And it could be an argument that you've been having with another member of the production internally, team. Internally, absolutely. Internally, and this person identifies that argument says, the problem with this play If they'd is only this. sorted out if this. If they'd sort this out, this, I'd be fucking saying everything. <laughs> <laughs> for God's sake, that's precisely my point. That's so now I, I hate the fact, I'm now in a dilemma because I hate the fact it's a bad review, but I also admire the fact that I agree with them, you know. Yeah, so yeah. It's really, really hard. So, yeah, dog shit, I think it's going a little bit. Going a little far. I thought it was going too far, actually. That's going too far. Tell me this. Um, at what age, I was thinking about this the other day, looking back on your long life, and boy, it's a long life. <laughs> at what age, during the, the span of many years and many decades, at what age do you think, looking back, you are at your most stupid. Oh, that's a that's a tricky one, isn't it? I would imagine eighteen. I don't know, really. Uh, would you really? Okay, I I'm going to put it a so. bit further. That's, I'm going to go further. I'm going to go further. I'm going to say, and I'm going to throw this out there to everybody. Yeah, because everybody can think about this. I think you're at your most stupid when you're twenty-three. Oh right, why is that? That's, because that's interesting. You sort of think you know you now know everything. Yeah. Because <laughs> you've gone through all the education <laughs> and you you know kind of first jobs and so forth. And you're probably not settled down with kids, you know, or whatever. You're also earning some money so you could express that stupidity, aren't you? You're, you yes. you know, you can go off and do extravagant things you because you've got the cash. You don't you're 18 to, just thinking about it. You don't have to go home. Every night, and and be met by the disapproving uh, stare of your father or mother. Yeah, yeah. You know, because the, the the family you've grown up with. Okay, I'm developing this as I go along here. Yeah. Bear with me. The family you've grown up with, you cannot bullshit. They know you, don't they? You know, yep. your sisters, your brothers, your parents. They know you. They know every stupid thing you ever did the age of being five or whatever. They yeah. know it. It's all all in the, in the memory bank there. So you can't bullshit them, yes? At university or college or whatever, you're just in the throes of it and learning and doing things for the first time and all that. But when you come out at the age of 20, and when you're 23, you've got the, that faux sophistication about you. And I'm a man or a woman of the world. I know yes. all about it nowadays. I've travelled. And yes. you, then, you then start inventing lies about your earlier age that you couldn't do on the home front. You say, yeah, of course my father was a spy or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever ridiculous thing you make up, I don't know, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah people say, oh, yeah, when well, we were at school, we used to set fire to the school or whatever. Oh, yes, of course I was expelled. All those things, you know. It's the age, curiously enough, when young men form bands and make up lies about themselves, yeah. you know, because they can. And so that's the brief window during which you can do it. 
when you've settled down to a, some kind of pattern and maybe married or had children or whatever, you can't do that anymore. But also, if we're talking about, here largely about men, aren't we? Uh, you know, also, Funnily you, enough, situation think where you're, you've settled down with some girl who's taken you aside and said, stop doing that. Stop. You look ridiculous. You sound ridiculous. <laughs> you are ridiculous. <laughs> In fact, carry on doing that, and I might have to walk. <laughs> So that's quite a deterrent. You see, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you settle down with, you know, a, a partner who simultaneously loves you and thinks you're ridiculous. You know, that's it. It's the two things going on at the same time. That's your salvation if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's my theory, 23, you know, so, you know, I just, it just made me That was think. the theory that Lads Magazine publishers always had, wasn't it? That was the kind of age group that you were trying to get hold of, who were on their kind of last fling before they meet the girlfriend with well, whom they settle down, you know. Possibly. I've also always had that theory that the age, here's another age question. I've got two more age questions actually here. Go on. What's the age that most people want to be? Oh, that's a good one. I'm going to tell you what my answer is. Yeah. My answer is 17. Because when we look back at 17, we all think, God, that was great, wasn't it? Yeah, we do. Wasn't, wasn't that 17 good? was particularly good because you And when you're 12, you want to be 17. Yeah, when you're 12, you can't go. You literally, I mean, there's no way you can go to clubs. You can't go to pubs. You can't do any of those things. Well, 17, 17, you suddenly got independence, haven't you? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you're kind of, I don't know. Aren't, aren't, aren't young men in their sexual prime at the age of 17? Don't I they remember it? I think they're probably. Right. I think they're oh probably. So anyway, what were you going to say? And also no responsibilities at all. No, no, no. no. Completely freewheeling. Yeah, That's apart. good. Is there, have you got another question? That's good. No, 17. well, so 17. So my other question, which was, and this is all triggered by a thing I was reading this morning. Um, in the, Nikki Haley, American politician, has announced that she's uh, running for the presidency, and uh, and um, Don Lemon, who's an American um, CNN um, anchor, on on the program yesterday, said that she's she's no longer in her prime. Now, this is a pretty stupid thing to say. Particularly when he's got either side of him, he's got female anchors, you know, because Nikki Haley is 51, yeah? Yeah. And he said, well, she's no longer in a prime. And these two women said, well, what are you talking about? Quite right. Quite rightly. <laughs> and he said, he said, well, no, in a prime's a 20s or a 30s. And uh, he has now, this has gone down so bad. He subsequently had to offer a monologue to the whole of the newsroom apologizing, a monologue which was how long, Mark, uninterrupted? Six minutes. Oh, my. Six God. minutes. God. Now, that is a public humiliation of the kind that the that the Quakers were, you know. Jesus. Uh, Pilgrim Fathers would have been, would have understood. You know, six minutes. How apologizing. many times do you get to say you're sorry in six oh minutes? Oh, my God. Quite a few, isn't it? But, I mean, you know, li listen. TV people say stupid things all the time. We say stupid things on podcasts. You know, you're sitting there, you, you, you're riffing. <laughs> Sometimes you consider, you reconsider, you think, oh, I shouldn't have said that or whatever, but I'm not on you know, national television in the United States. But uh, 
you know, the question of primes, I thought was a really interesting thing. Because Nikki Hilly, 51, and also, let, let's say, pretty well-preserved 51, actually. She yeah. Doesn't even look 51. You can say it very much about people in, in, in various sports, can't you, and athletic activities. You can, that's, that's absolutely fair enough. You know that by the time you're 37, if you're a footballer, you, things are going to start to tail off, you know. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can't do sprint anymore, but you can take up the marathon later on. You yeah, know, yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, to say that about somebody in professional capacity, that's, that's, that's hard, isn't it? It is, yeah. And so, uh, yes, well, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's got time, a considerable time to repent at his leisure. The Word Podcast. It passes the time. Somebody got in touch this week saying we'd had Kate Mossman on last week or whatever it was and how we ought to have Kate on more often. And yes, we should. We definitely should. Kate's got, you know, children to look after and so forth. But um, but but anyway, Kate got in touch this week and said to me, I'm trying to remember an album cover where the singer appeared on the front apparently serenading a blonde who you can only see from the back, yes? That's right. And yet when you opened the fold-out, this blonde was revealed to be to be an Afghan hound, yes? And she was trying to think what was the album cover, and she... She we became that. obsessed about this because <laughs> I, I am absolutely sure this record exists. You then tweeted about it, and it would have got out to all the people, the Danny Bakers, the Danny Kellys, the Andrew Males, the people who, you know, people feed, anybody who probably know a record collectors. Who no one's come back yet, but I'm absolutely convinced this, this exists. I, to the point where I think either they're sitting at a piano or, in my mind, they're sitting at a park bench. I can't remember. And I now start to think that the dog, the long-haired was wearing a beret. Have I gone mad? <laughs> I thought the dog was wearing a beret to make the dog look even more like it might be a human being. But anyway, we think this record exists. We have scra- we've had sleepless nights, haven't we, thinking about well, it? Well, and people if have, su- yeah, got people have suggested what it might be. That Some people have suggested, you know, quite convincingly. Oh, the Johnny Guitar that, Watson record? That yeah. we might, no, no, that we might be confusing it with a tv commercial and there have been there yeah. has been more than one tv commercial that played on this idea of you know, shot from behind and yeah. who, who's the who's the girl in the open top sports car with my boyfriend oh god it's a dog whatever and um you know and it struck me that we've seen just so many millions of images and and they play with the same jokes and the same ideas again and again and again. And so they just become a blurred. <laughs> they, yeah, they do. You think, yeah, that's a familiar idea. Yes, I've seen that. But where exactly I've seen that, I do not know. And, um, you know, so loads of people have, have looked at the idea of, w- of which album cover might it have been, and people suggested... People immediately off the top of the head suggested, well, it's got to Clifford T. Ward. <laughs> well, the, I, again, I, I think the singer-songwriter in question also had quite long hair for some reason. But it may be the, 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 maybe a psychological thing, and I just think that from behind Clifford T. Ward might look like a woman. Might look like an Afghan hand. An Afghan hand, it's possible. And uh, and so somebody sent me, uh, and was it, is it, 
Is it a group formed by Rick Nelson's sons called Nelson? And they both had long blonde hair. Yeah. Yep. Which they used to make a big thing of. One of their album covers has them from the back, you know. Could it be yeah. could it be confused with that? But it's a it's a fascinating idea that during the Halcyon Days, the album cover, which start in, you know, the early 50s and go through to the late 80s, I suppose, the early 90s. How many millions of album covers were there? Just millions. And millions, and how many you've seen, and how many you're probably getting mixed up and confused and just <laughs> collating in your mind. I know. And you're just flicking through this this thing in the back of your head, aren't you? Yeah. The thing, what, I, what I always find myself wishing in those cases that I could walk into a, a record store that was like a really old-fashioned record store, had absolutely everything. Yeah. Uh, and could just start in the A's. And just go through, you know. And eventually, somewhere I, I would find it, you know. It would be F, the Fabulous Poodles. <laughs> yeah, that's right, right. There it is. It's Johnny Guitar Watson. It's whoever, you know. Anyway, the search still continues. So if this is... Um, if anybody's got any clues as to what this might be, we're convinced it exists. Get in touch with us. Any time of the day or night. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. And we're joined, I think possibly for the third time now, uh, for a birthday birthday slot, his third birthday, the cake has three candles, (laughs) by Nick Foreman. Nick, it's lovely to see you again. Is it your birthday today? It was birthday midweek, so I sandwiched it between two two, um, visits to the DeMott Foot Hall. Last night I went to see uh, Danny Baker. How was that? Well, he started at 7.30 sharp. I've got to say, yeah, I'm amazed you're home. And you're home. <laughs> and, and we, we left at five past 11 and we had a, a 12-minute interval for, to catch our breath. It so was, he obviously, he obviously wasn't, wasn't feeling the full ticket, really, because that's that's quite sh- that's a short yeah. serving of Tandy Baker. Yeah. So any so, particularly good subjects that he touched on? Um, he was just impressing upon us the sheer good look he says that he has. It's all fallen into his lap, apparently. That's true. Uh, and uh, so, no, it's very entertaining. And during the course of the meeting, uh, the uh, the show, he uh, announced, as I think he said before on Word in Your Ear, that he's auctioning all his records. Yeah, However, yeah. It, it's now a feature of the... Uh, he gives auction. away an album every night, doesn't he? Does. So last night he threw into the audience a promotional copy of John and Yoko's Milk and Honey. Um, oh, my God. So was there, was there, was there, was there a, an unseemly scramble to be the to be the No. Um, he went to the corner of the stage and threw it up onto uh, a couple in the balcony. Oh, really? uh, and, and just said, here you go, and threw it up to them. What could that be worth, though? Well, Seriously, a promotional know. copy? I would have thought that would be quite a lot. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I it's something, but you know, you're not. You're not yeah. going to flog it, are you? Sure. No, 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 no. It's just a lovely thing to have. <laughs> keep it as a conversation piece. Say, what are you doing with a promotional copy of Milk and Honey? Thereby, hangs thereby a hangs a tale. Yes. So you you saw Danny there, the De Montfort on on Friday, and yeah. uh, and uh, your birthday was on Thursday. Did you say? So who did you see on Wednesday? Oh no, I, I saw Stuart Lee the Friday before. So oh, Friday. How was he? Love Stuart Lee. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yes, Stuart Lee's fairly intense. He came on and announced that he looked like an overweight William Shatner, which uh, I think think was true. He's got his quiff and his his, his um, 
his jacket going on. But uh, the thing is, um, with Stuart Lee, um, it's a bit like sitting in some respects in a, in a sort of Shakespeare comedy, because sometimes people will laugh as a form of virtue signalling. Or, oh, right. <laughs> yes. You know, hey, I get the joke. I oh, get yeah. the joke. Very clever joke, I, and I get it. Um, yeah, you want to laugh slightly ahead of everybody. Yes. Else. yes. <laughs> I suppose so. So the De Montfort Hall, right. Do they still have music gigs at the De Montfort Hall? Oh, absolutely. I mean, right, watching yeah. Peter Jackson's Get Back, I mean, all those amazing things we saw, like uh, Paul creating Get Back in front of us. The biggest thing for me was that, John Lennon name-checks to Moffat Hall two he or three does. times. He does. He does. <laughs> he talks about the sound system, doesn't he? Well, I, th- I think probably around, around that time, though, isn't it when Delaney and Bonnie had toured and George Harrison played with them, didn't he? So the Beatles had had no experience of live work post-1966, and in those days, it had been, you know, huge, great stadiums. Nobody could hear anything at all. And then the technology had moved on massively, and they hadn't had anything to do with it. So it was only when George Harrison went out with Delaney and Bonnie, he thought, oh, my God, PAs, all that kind of stuff. And so that's why they were talking about um, about places like the De Montfort Hall, because they'd never played that kind of that kind of show at all, had they? Yeah. They, they thought there was a brave new world of uh, of presentation. So it's customary on the on the occasion of birthdays of uh, Patreon supporters. Have you got a log you'd like to throw on the conversational fire this particular this week? Well, I sort of have. To, I'll, I'll go Beatles again this time. Go on. I I have uh, perhaps two questions, and again, choose the one which you might prefer. So, so the first one is that if you had to explain to somebody what the Beatles was were uh but only using one of their albums which one might it be oh the second one is following on from your book david about uh the beatles were underrated etc do either of you hold any opinions genuinely held opinions which might be considered as heresy <laughs> for the beatles god I, well, I don't know if mine's heresy but I really do believe people go on about the songwriting far too much, uh, as if that that's where their genius resides. No, their genius re- resided in the way they performed and the way they recorded. It was the, it was their personality in the in what they could do with the material they wrote that made them exceptional. And I think about this all the time. I think. If the Hollies, and the Hollies were a really, really good group, really good group, could really sing, could really play. If the Hollies had recorded She Loves You, would it be anything to match the Beatles' She Loves You? And I think the answer is no, it wouldn't at all, because it didn't have the personality. The Beatles had the personality, and they can make it shine out through everything they did. That's, that's so. That's so true. I, I, I have no heresy about the heretical comments about the Beatles, but I think the, the the fact that the very few Beatles songs I really don't like, "Love Me Do," I've never liked at all. "Mr. Moonlight," which again they didn't write actually. Um, you know, uh, "I Dig a Pony," things like that. Dave's point: even those songs, which are immensely lackluster, I think, are still really enjoyable because of the way that they arranged them, because the way they sung them, the way they played them, the way they performed them. Their performance was so extraordinary. They could they could elevate absolutely anything. Even those very early songs they played at Hamburg, 
all that that entire set, those old R and B songs, are, are, are absolutely gorgeous because of the way that their harmony vocals work and the way they're arranged. I think yeah, it's so yeah. She loves you is the kind of classic case because you know um, Norman Smith, the engineer, when he arrived at the session that day when they were due to do "She Loves You," and he happened to see the lyrics sitting down on a piece of paper, and he looked at it. He thought, "No, so this isn't going to work." That's right. Screwed it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's nothing here at all. Yeah. He was absolutely right. There was nothing there at all until they sang it, you know. Yeah. It's like it, trying to work out why the Beatles are so good. It's like trying to work out why Morecambe and Wise were so good. It's not the scripts. You watch those old clips of Morecambe and Wise. What's funny about Morecambe and Wise? Morecambe and Wise is what's funny about Morecambe and Wise. That's it. So the, what's great about the Beatles? In fact, Morgan Wise is delighted taking genuinely bad material in order to, to, to get something funny out of it, didn't it? Because they could just manage to make it but work. It was, again, it's personality. Weak gags, entirely. It's the genius of personality. That's yeah. what all those things are. And I think you could probably make the same case, Charlie Chaplin, you know, I, I don't know. You, know, you probably like cases throughout entertainment. It's the genius of personality and being able to put it over. And they could put it over by, by the, to the power of four, which doesn't apply to me, most things. So, heresy or not, you know that that's what I believe. This is the hill I will die on. <laughs> well, look, very good. Uh, have we have we satisfied you on that score? You have, and by bizarre coincidence, uh, the Hollies "I'm Alive" came on the radio as I was driving to. Uh, De Montfort Hall last night, and I was making more or less that exact same point about listen to the voices, listen to the musicianship, what's the difference? And my wife quoted Pulp Fiction and said, personality goes a long way. Is that what she said? Well, well that's very that's good. Absolutely, yeah. That's so She's true. spot on. She's absolutely spot on. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.